Welcome to episode 112 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today uh, by a guest commentator, uh, Eric Jensen, professor of law at BYU. He's been actively involved in the uh, international law aspects of cyber war and the uh, Talon Manual, uh, who will be updating us on Talon 2.0. Um, as you'll uh, hear, we don't agree that much, uh, which should make it a little more entertaining. Uh, also uh, t- with us today are Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office. Alan Cohn, formerly with DHS and now uh, in our Washington office. Uh, and Maury Schenk, uh, uh, formerly the managing partner of our London office and still with us in London. Uh, um, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, uh, so let's jump in. Uh, I asked Maury to join us because there's a lot of news out of Europe uh, in the last week. Uh, um, some of it pretty much expected, some of it requiring a, a deeper dive. Uh, uh, we finally have a, uh, um, uh, a new cross-Europe data protection regime. Uh, 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 Michael, uh, um, I I think you reported on this earlier. Uh, Any surprises in that? It does have the the massive uh, new fines, uh, uh, 2% of gross uh, revenue, if I remember right. Uh, But maybe there's a $20 million limit on, on how much they can fine you for data protection violations? Uh, well, I don't think there are any surprises in it because this has been kicking around for a while. And so the, the news last week was that it was approved by the um, European Parliament. Uh, and it goes into effect uh, in two years or two years from late May or, or June. Uh, but I think for, for U.S. companies, at least, I think the, the one of the most important things is um, the clear extension of extraterritorial jurisdiction. Um uh, uh, over data processing outside the EU where, where it relates to the offering of goods or services to EU consumers or monitoring of behavior of EU individuals. So I, I think companies that, that may think that this is really, you know, something interesting but not really relevant to them are, are possibly in for a rude awakening if they, um, uh, if they start getting hit up with big fines in a couple of years. So you know what I find interesting about that, uh, is I think it may destroy the entire intellectual foundation for the restrictions on data exports. If they can exercise jurisdiction over how I process data in the United States when I'm dealing with uh, European customers, uh, why do they have to prevent uh, um, exports of data to countries that have uh, inadequate uh, laws? Because the inadequate laws are not going to determine the standards that apply to the processing of that data. Well, you know, Stuart, if you go to Amsterdam, you might be able to get up to more trouble than you can there in Washington, D.C. Um, so somebody might say, don't go to Amsterdam, you'll get up to trouble there. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, it does seem to me there's always been a WTO argument uh, that uh, restricting data flows is a trade barrier. Uh, uh, and I think now you could make that argument a lot more aggressively uh, since the Europeans are uh, saying that they have the authority to regulate even after the data leaves their shores. Uh, you might say, well, then regulate the data uh, after it leaves your shores instead of regulating the f- entire flow of data. And, you know, there's nothing terribly unique about this extension of extraterritorial jurisdiction. It's consistent with what the FTC does in the United States. I mean, if a company is offering goods or services from outside the U.S. to U.S. consumers um, and it's breached, the FTC uh, asserts jurisdiction over over that company. Um, 
to examine its data security practices. Yeah, it's an interesting question why the Europeans didn't adopt this approach from the start. Uh, maybe it would have been more controversial to say, you know, um, our rules travel with the data. Uh, but in in many contexts, uh, uh, for sure, you've you've established a relationship to that jurisdiction, and they can set the rules for uh, how you handle uh, uh, the transactions that you engage in. All right. Well, uh, uh, while we're at, uh, I, that, I, I take it that means we've uh, uh, resolved the WTO case against the European Union. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, there's there's a couple of more interesting topics. Um, one that I just can't resist. Uh, 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 Europe has now decided uh, uh, to adopt um, and collect. Uh, uh, air travel reservation data, uh, uh, PNR data. Um, uh, this is deeply satisfying uh, to me personally because uh, uh, we fought endless wars with the Europeans uh, in which they suggested that it was, uh, you know, the dark night of fascism had descended on the United States because we were collecting this data um, a, and that it was up to them to teach us that uh, we had to be very cautious and had to agree to all kinds of restrictions on our processing of that data, uh, uh, restrictions that now will turn around, I hope, and, and bite them. I, I don't know, Alan, if you uh, you also probably spent uh, 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 you know years of your life that you'll never get back uh, in meetings with the Europeans explaining once again that no, PNR is not the end of the world. Well, no, I mean, I, I only watched from afar as you and your successors uh, <laughs> uh, tilted against this windmill for, for many years. Um, but, uh, yeah, it does seem to prompt a new epilogue to, uh, to that chapter of your book. Exactly. No, that's right. I can write skating on stilts, and, and, and it has a happy ending at last. Uh, uh, actually, no, my, my latest idea is that we should make uh, visa waiver um, contingent on sharing PNR. Uh, uh, and maybe, uh, and we certainly should be asking what they're doing with all that data they're gathering on Americans. Uh, um, we've got every uh, uh, reason in the world to want to know uh, whether the dark night of fascism actually has descended in Europe. Uh, all right, speaking of uh, uh, of that uh, uh, and, and moral tutelage from uh, the European Union, the Article 29 Working Party has come back with its report on Privacy Shield. Uh, uh, as everybody remembers, Privacy Shield is the um, uh, substitute for the safe harbor. It tweaks uh, safe harbor in many ways uh, and includes some assurances about how the U.S. gathers intelligence. Uh, the Article 29 Working Party has taken on itself to decide whether they think uh, Privacy Shield uh, uh, meets existing data protection rules and uh, not surprisingly, they have um, expressed doubts, uh, although I thought not as strongly as one might have expected. Uh, uh, Maury, I, I know you read the, uh, the Article 29 Working Party report. Uh, um, what, where are their doubts and uh, how seriously should we be taking them? Well, I think the doubts are pretty serious. I mean, they go out of their way to complement the U.S. and the EU negotiators for achieving a lot of progress. But the doubts are pretty significant, and I, I think portend a pretty significant battle before the privacy shield is finally adopted. Tying it back to the first topic we talked about, the new general data protection regulation, they note that the effect of that will have to be considered, and they seem to already be trying to impose very detailed European standards on data that's gone to the U.S. Uh, I found the report rather confusing. They seem to say in different places what their main concerns are, but there is a conclusion section where they articulate three main concerns, and those were that there aren't rules in the privacy shield about when data has to be deleted, that there is uh, a lack of clarity, second, on um, mass collection of data by the U.S. government, and third, that the new ombudsperson set up within the State Department, uh, that there isn't clarity about her uh, her authority. And there's a number of other issues raised as well. 
Yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. I, I agree with you. It was a little confusing, and uh, um, sometimes they seem to say, oh, yeah, everything is going along really well. There's just a few uh, worries here, and in other cases, they seem to, to take a much tougher line. Uh, uh, I wonder if there isn't some confusion in the Article 29 Working Party about how much uh, room they have to actually demand more than the European Commission demanded as part of the negotiation. Yeah, and you know, it's the Article 29 Working Party is representatives of the data protection authorities in the member states. The next step of the Privacy Shield is it goes to what's called the Article 31 Committee, which is representatives of the governments in the member states, which you'd expect some overlap, although not necessarily because some of these data protection authorities are independent. But uh, somehow there's going to have to be agreement between those two on on the approach or or a battle or differences that somehow get ignored. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting process to watch. Yeah. I, my guess, my, my bet is that there will be a, a fair amount of ignoring. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Article 29 Working Party and the Data Protection Authorities generally are um, – Independent, they are more like uh, uh, the ACLU uh, than they are like uh, an arm of government, uh, uh, and I think that means that the uh, um, uh, when governments get involved, they're more likely to ignore what the ACLU has to say than to uh, um, follow their own governmental interests. But we'll see. Uh, a little more governmental than the ACLU. If, if the governments ignore their own data protection authorities, there will be some noise, and it'll be interesting to watch and listen to. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, there's plenty of noise when we ignore the ACLU. Uh, it's one of the uh, satisfactions of that process. Uh, uh, all right. Um, warrants for phone location records. Again, we got another Court of Appeals decision, uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, and it looks as though we're starting to see maybe a consensus uh, uh, arising the, the, out of uh, uh, the various circuits that are looking at uh, when a, a warrant might be required, or am I um, uh, kidding myself? Uh, there's possibly the beginning of a consensus. The, the Sixth Circuit uh, last week joined the, the Fifth and the en banc 11th circuits in deciding that um, law enforcement does not need a warrant to get historical cell site location records from a, a, a cell phone provider. Uh, and it uh, basically relied on the third-party doctrine from the Supreme Court's decision in Smith v. Maryland, which, which holds that a person lacks a reasonable expectation of privacy in information that's voluntarily conveyed to a third party. Um, here, when you use your cell phone, you're, you're voluntarily disclosing uh, the location of your cell phone um, to your provider and thereby giving up your, your expectation of privacy. That's, that's the rationale. Of course, that rationale also extends to the content that you share with your provider in the course of sending or, or receiving it. Uh, but courts have not tended generally to, to extend it that far. But at least cell site location data, that, that seems to be the trend. Although the four, a Fourth Circuit panel went the other way and said a, a warrant is required, although that's, that's currently being reviewed uh, by the Fourth Circuit en banc. So, so we'll see. We may, if that goes, if, if the en banc Fourth Circuit uh, joins the others, then we'll have uni- unanimity among the courts of appeals. And we'll never have to get to the Supreme Court. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that sounds uh, pretty reasonable. Speaking of warrants for, uh, for data, uh, um, the um, uh, House Judiciary Committee has finally, after a long, uh, uh, slow fight, mostly with the regulatory commissions, uh, uh, has moved uh, ECPA reform forward. Uh, the uh, Judiciary Committee has voted to send a, uh, uh, an ECPA reform bill that essentially requires warrants for um, stored data as well as uh, you know, long-term storage, short-term storage. It doesn't matter. Uh, uh, a warrant is required to get, uh, 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 for example, the contents of, of emails. Uh, um, we're still waiting to see whether that is going to make it to the uh, uh, through the Senate. And my guess is it's a lot easier to get it through the House than the, through the Senate. 
Well, especially when you have 314 co-sponsors on the bill in the House yes. and you get it out of the Judiciary Committee 28 to nothing. Right. And there's only 26 co-sponsors in the Senate. So obviously, uh, cooler heads are prevailing there. Yes, it seems the regulatory commissions, and particularly the SEC, is uh, particularly exercised about this. And uh, perhaps they'll have more luck with, the, with their arguments on the Senate side. They also, of course, have the calendar and the end-of-year congestion on their side as well. Yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, it used to be you couldn't move a law enforcement, just like a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act amendment forward unless you also did a little something for the privacy groups. Uh, I, and now the privacy groups seem to be saying, well, I, we don't see any reason to do anything for law enforcement. So if I were in the Judiciary Committee now... I would be thinking of all the little fixes that uh, the, judici- the, the justice needs or the intelligence community needs where it makes sense to do it, but nobody on privacy on the privacy side has been willing to see it happen, and now you've got a little bit of leverage. Uh, that's, uh, that's certainly what I would be looking for. There you go. Tip for listeners. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Quick hits on FBI. No surprises here. Right? Uh, uh, it looks as though uh, well, the feds have said we still need need uh, uh, help getting uh, uh, the phone in the New York case unlocked from from Apple. Uh, uh, There's a lot of sourced information suggesting that the FBI didn't get anything particularly helpful from the San Bernardino phone when they uh, unlocked it. Uh, And it appears that um, uh, the way the FBI got access to the phone was they paid a one-time fee to a hacker who got them in. Uh, which seems like uh, a solution that doesn't scale. Yes, absolutely. Well, it was entertaining that um, that the 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 government's response to uh, the judge's question in um, in the Brooklyn case was about as long as the summary that you just yes. gave. This is the way law should be practiced. <laughs> you asked whether we thought we needed it. Yes, we need it. Yes, exactly. So, exactly. Um, but uh, and and you know, it's not that much of a surprise that um, that the FBI hasn't learned anything from the phone, given the range of other uh, types of information that they have access to, and that you described yep. those in a previous episode of the podcast, um, it's not surprising that you wouldn't um, be able to, you wouldn't get a whole lot more from the individual's work phone uh, that he happened to discard in his car, as opposed to the other ones, which he right. took great care to uh, to destroy. Yeah, and, and you know, the Bureau uh, leaves no stone unturned, and uh, this was just a stone that they felt they had to uh, uh, overturn uh, uh, in order to see whether there might be something in there. Um, just like you, would, you wouldn't ordinarily say, gee, we've destroyed um, six floors of interior parking with an explosion. I uh, I guess we we don't really need to go looking for the axle of the car that blew up here, do we? Uh, that's not the FBI's view. The FBI goes through and finds every piece of that car, puts it back together, and that's how they got the uh, vehicle ID number. Right. Of course, it may be more appropriate in this case if they went looking for the rear ashtray in the car. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, well, you never know what you're going to find. Uh, so, I, this is a story that I thought was really interesting. I, I, it, in, in part, it's sort of predictable. Uh, uh, We've got a company that uh, measures the security of uh, companies and industries, uh, did a study. What's the name of the company? Secure Sight? It's called um, Security Scorecard. Security Scorecard. And there's two or three of of these bits, I I think. uh, uh, They look at external information to evaluate your security consciousness. How fast do you install new patches, which is something you can tell from looking at the uh, the outside. Uh, uh, what version of the software exactly. you're running? What are you running? running. Um, and a, there are probably 20 or 30 elements that you can measure from the outside that give you some clue about how security conscious a company is. Um, and uh, they looked at uh, a whole bunch of industries and uh, decided the U.S. government came up last in security, uh, uh, which it doesn't completely surprise me. Uh, um, but now that they know they're being measured on these things, one would hope that the uh, U.S. government would get better. Um, 
I wondered if you had a chance, Alan, to, to dig a little deeper into this and figure out, um, for those of us who probably ought to expect that we're going to get measured on these uh, things, and law firms are uh, are going to be measured like other uh, uh, suppliers, uh, uh, what kinds of things they're looking at? Yeah, so they looked at um, basically seven categories of this kind of externally available uh, information application security, um, their proprietary qubit score, which is a threat indicator mm-hmm. score, um, uh, the presence of malware, net, general network security, mainly open ports and yep. protocols, uh, password exposure. So where do you find people's passwords? Oh, so they go the out web. and look for all the open source uh, uh, yeah. information that Data tells leads, you. Data leaks, key dumps. Here's a, here's a domain and here's yeah. a person from this domain whose, whose password information is right, exposed. Right. Uh, patching cadence, which you described yeah. looking at the version of the software that's that's running, and then social engineering. Um, and, and do they do they they must give people a downgrade for having their data out on the web? I guess that's the uh, password. Yeah, that's exposure. kind of out on the password yeah. exposure, and there's some other there are some other pieces in there as well. Um, and so yes, yeah, so they found that government scores um, uh, at the bottom of the bottom performers. But it's an interesting list. The top performing sector that they found was information sec- services, followed by construction and food. What? Financial, that's crazy. yeah, financial services kind of just barely makes it into the the top. Performers and then joining the go- government at the bottom are industries like telecommunications, pharma, energy, uh, which is somewhat surprising. I do find that surprising, and I wonder if it has something to do with the uh, the number of players in the uh, field because the bottom players are going to do less well than the uh, the top. So if you have a highly concentrated industry, you might do better than one where there are lots and lots of small players. Yeah, there were some other interesting pieces here, um, and I think it goes to this bigger versus smaller, mm-hmm. sophisticated not. Um, among the governmental players, they broke it out into um, uh, top and bottom and then uh, state, local, yep. and federal. Um, you have, of course, the Central Intelligence Agency, um, joined by the Federal Trade Commission in top performers. Oh. Uh, so walking the walk. Yes. Um, God bless them. I, I, I abuse them all the time. Exactly. But on this, they, exactly. they deserve some kudos. Uh, and joined by uh, organizations like Clark County, Nevada, the, uh-huh. the um, yes, but I, uh, you'd Las expect Vegas that. area, um, the, the Bureau of Reclamation, and the Architect of the Capitol. So huh. some interesting performers. And then joining NASA uh, in at the bottom right. uh, were the State Department uh, and NOAA, as well as a collection of states, including Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Washington, Missouri, <coughs> Indiana, and South Carolina. I'm, I'm guessing Hillary's uh, server put uh, the State Department <laughs> at the bottom right by, by itself. But, uh, that, is, that's, that is really interesting. And NASA is a big... Um, a tech supplier, they do a lot of work for others as well as themselves. Uh, uh, so that's actually a pretty scary uh, outcome. Well, uh, we're going to hear more about this, I'm sure, from other suppliers. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it is nice to get something that is at least vaguely objective in terms of measuring security. Uh, and, uh, you know, the FTC is not big, so it doesn't require that you be enormous to uh, uh, the, to do well on this uh, this test. Uh, what was interesting also is that um, in addition to, to profiling NASA specifically, um, uh, the, there was also a profile of a short profile of FBI and IRS, which each uh, faced challenges around the breaches that they encountered and, and uh, varying degrees of success in improving their scores since then. All right. Um, any other uh, – we've got a whole bunch of little topics. Um, a, the Seventh Circuit is found standing in another uh, uh, data breach case. Uh, uh, Michael, that's just yet another uh, uh, brick in the wall, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure what that means. They found other ways to, to find standing in data breach cases, I thought, uh, already. So this is just another uh, alternative uh, file, finding, I believe. Well, it's it's consistent with the previous Seventh Circuit decision in uh, the Neiman Marcus case where the court held that where uh, in a situation where hackers have stolen payment card data and have actually already made fraudulent charges, that in that situation the, the possibility of future harm is certainly impending, which is the standard set by the Supreme Court in Clapper. Right. Uh, that is, it's it's likely enough that the the risk of future harm is concrete enough to, for the plaintiffs to have standing. Um, 
And the theory essentially is there's a reason hackers steal payment card data, and that's to use it. So it's not like a case where somebody breaks into your car and steals a laptop, not because they want the data on it, but because they want the laptop, or magnetic tape goes rolling off the Iron Mountain truck and nobody knows what happened to it. You know, in those sorts of situations, it's not so likely that someone's going to um, engage in identity theft or make fraudulent charges on a, on a credit card number. But in this case, the court said um, that it's likely enough that they, they had standing. But what to me was most interesting about this decision, and I think potentially harmful to uh, uh, to defendants is the court cited the, the defendant company, which is P.F. Chang, the restaurant um, chain. It cited its own press releases, uh, which encouraged consumers to monitor their credit reports um, and talked about how and basically sent its notices to uh, customers of all its restaurants. And the, the court basically held those uh, actions against the company, uh, sort of treating them as as admissions that it was possible that um, customers might be the victim of identity theft, and it might be all customers, not just the ones of, of certain restaurants that the company said had been breached. Uh, and that creates, I think, a perverse incentive for companies when they're breached, you know, not to, to spread uh, the warning widely or, or not to give advice to um, potentially affected customers about what to do, because those very actions might be used against the company in uh, in, a, in responding to a motion to dismiss. And if plaintiffs get to discovery, if they get past the motion to dismiss, the likelihood of settlement goes way up, and the amount of the settlement goes way up. So we're going to start seeing uh, breach notice uh, notices that say, in many cases, uh, there's no harm at all, uh, and you shouldn't assume because you're getting this notice that anything bad will happen, but it's only prudent uh, as a precautionary matter, yada, yada. Right. Just more, more uh, boilerplate around the, around the notification. All right. Uh, well, um, the White House has announced a cybersecurity commission uh, um, uh, with a variety of people. It's led by Tom Donilon, uh, 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 which didn't strike me as being likely to um, add to its um, persuasive power to the next president, whoever that president may be. Uh, um, uh, but it's not going to it's not going to address encryption. It's supposed to come up with uh, actionable. Items that are, you know, are not the subject of massive uh, national dispute. Uh, uh, so we might get some interesting ideas out of that, and we might not. Well, it's in, yes, it's it's interesting. You have on the one hand um, a lot of uh, familiar names if you've been following any of the administration's activities yes. on cyber. Uh, that said, you have some names of people who have given some very good ideas and have yeah, some very good no, no, insights. Uh, Herb Lin is, uh, is, is reasonably smart on these topics and reasonably middle of the road. Uh, Joe Sullivan uh, has uh, had every security job in Silicon Valley, as far as I can tell. Yeah, A.J. Banga gave one of the best uh, uh, remarks at the President's Cyber Summit in Stanford, at Stanford last year. Uh, Patrick Gallagher, who yep. headed NIST for a while, uh, now at University of Pittsburgh, very thoughtful on these issues. So, no, it, we'll have to see. They don't have much time to work, uh, and they don't have a lot to work with. But um, they had their, la- their first meeting last week. They have um, five upcoming workshops coming up next month in New York over the summer in, in, uh, in Houston and, and then three more. And so, so we'll see. So they're actually going to do, like, open hearings? Uh, the format uh, we're waiting to see, but, yeah, some type of field kind of uh, hearing-esque activities are, uh, are coming up. So. All right. Well, maybe I should uh, go down there and, and lobby for, <clears throat> for hacking back. Uh, and for attribution, better attribution, et cetera. Um, all right. I, uh, last thing I was going to cover, unless anybody else wants to jump in, is Uber has issued its, its first transparency report, and they have demonstrated how to use a transparency report to engage in lobbying uh, of uh, uh, the government, because basically what they said is 12 million Drivers and riders have had their data taken. Uh, but what they really meant was we are regulated by the state of California and other uh, uh, jurisdictions, and they demand data, and you ought to think of it as a privacy scandal uh, so that we don't have to pay you know, uh, much attention to these regulators. Uh, uh, if you're actually worried how often law enforcement asks for data from Uber, it was something like 
400 different accounts that they uh, actually ask for information on, not 11 million. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, this uh, tells you um, the transparency reports are mostly exercises in corporate PR, and this is just a more clever than average use of uh, uh, transparency report for corporate PR. All right. Uh, why don't we uh, uh, turn now to our guest commentator, Eric Jensen, and talk about uh, uh, the law of cyber war, if that isn't uh, a contradiction in terms. All right. Eric Jensen uh, is um, a uh, longtime cavalry officer and JAG officer uh, with the U.S. Army, uh, uh, now teaching at BYU. And uh, we're talking to him because uh, he... Uh, uh, has been part of the team that's participating in what I guess we can call the Talon 2.0 process. Uh, uh, so, Eric, welcome, and I'm going to ask you to explain Talon 2.0. Great. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here, Stuart. Um, so, of course, Talon 1 was the first part of the Talon process, and Talon 1 really engaged on the law of armed conflict, and, and that's why it's titled International Law Applicable to Cyber Warfare. And the intent was to look at armed conflict and determine how cyber rules, the current law of, of armed conflict, might impact cyber practices in armed conflict. Well, post-Talon uh, post 1, we got a lot of feedback that that was all great, but that's not the majority of what is going on in the world. And in fact, most of the cyber interactions that go on in the world are below the level of armed conflict, uh, maybe at a, a level that we might term cyber confrontation. And so we got back together with a bit of a different group. Uh, we amended the group a little bit, again, based on feedback from Talon 1, made it much more international in scope. Um, and we we uh, tried to then wrestle with, well, what are the rules of current existing international law rules that would apply to cyber confrontations, to events, cyber exchanges, cyber interactions that are below that threshold of armed conflict and that really are about the everyday uh, interactions that go on. Because I, I, I think um, the more you know about the law of armed conflict uh, and how it might apply here, the less uh, likely it uh, appears to be a useful guide to anyone uh, um, uh, short of an actual uh, uh, shooting war or something very close. Is that more or less right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. So you, you, you look at, at history and what has happened. I mean, there's been cyber events that have, you know, George is a good example of an armed conflict where a cyber event took place or cyber incidents, cyber incidents took place in conjunction with an armed conflict. But we, other than that and some other isolated instances, we have very little uh, history of cyber events between states in armed conflict, but we have lots of history of cyber events between states and between states and other actors that are outside of armed conflict. And I, I think many people who study this would say you'd have trouble fitting any of these things that aren't already acts of war, uses of armed force, uh, uh, armed attacks or uses of force, any of the things that we've seen into the usual rubric for uh, um, the law of armed conflict, even, even the attack on... Um, the Ukraine power grid, which I'm going to assume for purposes of this discussion was done by the Russians, because it probably was. Um, a, it would be hard for Ukraine to call that a uh, um, an attack that meets the UN's requirements for violation of the, um, the, the UN uh, convention. And even if they could, it probably wouldn't justify them in engaging in um, anything more than proportional countermeasures. They, they couldn't treat it as a, 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 a basis for saying, well, we've been attacked in a way that justifies us going to war. Is that? Am I right about that? Well, you know, there's opinions obviously differ on this, and, and I think you're clearly with the majority. Um, but there are some people who, would, if you're looking for incidents that might qualify as either a use of force or an armed attack, I think there are three that you could point to. One would be, Stuxnet, assuming that it was state-sponsored and targeted the state of Iran. Another would be the Saudi Aramco event, 30,000 computers in Saudi Aramco being taken down. And then I think this latest 
attack on the power grid. We, we understand now that Sweden, I guess, had some issues with their traffic controls in November of last year. So some of those might rise. I don't know that the air traffic control issue did but the in Sweden, but the Ukraine power hack, there are clearly some people out there who are saying this probably crossed the threshold of use of force. But I, I think the majority is probably the, still with if, you. Even if it crosses the threshold uh, for use of force, it's probably not an armed attack, uh, which means that you can't really respond to it with the full military options, right? Right. Now, of course, the U.S. is a little unique in that view in that the U.S. views there being no difference between an armed attack and use of force. The U.S. thinks that, that both of those are the same. If you commit a use of force, it's an armed attack and vice versa. The rest of the world, or at least the rest of the majority of the world, believe there is a gap there, in which case, just as you said, if something was a use of force and not an armed attack, proportional countermeasures are going to be your most likely response Assuming that the UN Security Council doesn't take any action themselves. So, so as you know, I'm I'm a skeptic about all of this international law war stuff in the cyber. Right? I and and I guess I would I would say maybe the fact that we wrote this entire book in Talon about a, the um, law of armed conflict as it applies to cyber, and then discovered that there wasn't really much to write about. To, uh, raises questions about whether we should be trying to write down rules for something that we haven't really even seen much of. Uh, uh, so I, I would have thought an appropriate response to, to the realization that uh, Talon 1 is actually not relevant to much of the real world would be to say, okay, let's put it on the shelf and forget about it until we actually have some experience. But instead, the guys who wrote Talon 1 are now saying, well, since that wasn't relevant, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things where we have even less credibility. At least that's, this is my current view. Um, it's not clear to me that the guys at NATO uh, or many of the other people who participate in Talon One are the right people to be writing international law treatises generally. Well, so a couple of, I mean, you've made a couple of points there that I think are certainly worth thinking about. One is the value of even talking about these rules in advance of a lot more state action in this area. And, and it's a valid point. I think from our view, um, we would say the fact that not much uh, armed conflict has existed in which cyber has taken a key role doesn't mean that in the future that will be the case. We believe that, uh, that nations are taking a much more active role. The number of nations who are creating cyber groups or cyber cores or cyber parts of their military is steadily increasing. The capabilities amongst all these nations is steadily increasing. And so we would say that the, that the chances of cyber being part of an armed conflict, of any armed conflict that occurs in the future, at least between states, is very high. And, and in that case, we would hope that the Talon Manual and its exposition on what at least some of us thought the rules were might be helpful because if a state, for example, has this cyber capability and is wondering about the impact of reverberating effects or is wondering what, how to treat data with respect to an attack under Article 49 of Additional Protocol 1, I mean, these are questions that, uh, that are not, uh, that, that, that not every state might have a good legal grasp of and not have spent a lot of time thinking about. And we think that the Talon Manual may be useful to them. We certainly do not believe that the Talon Manual creates law. I mean, I know you don't, you, you know this is true. We, I certainly don't think so either. <laughs> yeah, we, and we don't think that was our role. What we think we were are, are people who have spent some time thinking about cyber stuff and, and we wanted to put down what we thought the law was. Now, in response to your point about, um, we were maybe the wrong people or maybe this was a useless task, um, in many cases, we have received a lot of feedback from states with respect to Talon 1, and in many cases, it was states who came back to the, the NATO CCDCOE, the Center for Cyber Defense, uh, the, the NATO Center in Talon, and said, look, that was great, but what would really be helpful would be to, to hear what you thought about the stuff below the threshold. So in some sense, Talon 2 is a response to states' inquiries on these issues, and then I would just have to add to that that in the process of formulating Talent 2, as we've written it and put it together, we have staffed it broadly among states all across the world, and their response has been tremendous. There have been at least three meetings with state parties where there have been 50-ish states who have come 
and presented ideas and talked about the text that we have provided them. So at least, uh, I guess my best response to your, um, your, your bit of criticism there would be to say states are at least taking a very significant interest in this and are providing us with lots of input on what they think, uh, are, what they think about our take on the rules. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I'm, I'm quite prepared to believe that. Uh, but it's my observation, working in Washington, that every time you write a law, there are winners and there are losers. And I'm, I think you're hearing from the people who would be winners if there were more law here. I'm not sure that includes the United States. Uh, uh, but why don't we jump into some of the topics that uh, Talon 2.0 is going to look at that Talon 1.0 didn't look at. And, and I know, for example... Uh, you have a whole section, uh, or are likely to have a whole section on international human rights law, uh, as it applies to cyber, and then a whole set of, uh, uh, discussions on jurisdiction, state responsibility, uh, when, when a state can respond to private action on another, uh, state's, uh, territory, and even espionage, which, uh, strikes me as a dangerous topic to cover in international law. So uh, give me give me your thoughts. Why don't we start with um, international human rights law uh, and um, where that intersects with cyber in the view of the people who are working on this topic. Sure. As, as you mentioned, Talent 2 is going to cover, you know, maybe 10 to 15 discrete uh, subjects that deal with what we think is that cyber confrontation issue. And one of those is, of course, human rights, because it's a key point along with the others that you mentioned. And, and I will have to tell you that human rights, you know, I mentioned that this group was a, was a, was global in nature. We had a representative from China, we had a representative from the United States, from European countries, from Thailand. So this was a much more global perspective than, than what we had in Talon 1. But I, I think that, that that human rights was probably one of the areas where we had the most discussion and, and maybe had the least uh, unanimity. You'll, you'll note, and you'll know this, Stuart, that the rules, the talent is divided up into rules and commentary, and rules are the things that we could get um, absolute consensus on amongst all of our groups. And then commentary, we would often, as we got down into the, the details of those rules, we would divide in a majority and a minority and, and, and others and human rights, I think there, you will see when it's, when it's published that human rights is one of those areas where there was lots of majority and minority views. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the question of, the, the basic question of when do human rights apply and how do they apply? We certainly agreed as a group in general that human rights applies to all cyber activities or almost all cyber activities, but then how those human rights apply is a different issue. So to determine that human rights applied to a situation, for example, when a state was exercising power or effective control over a system or over individuals is different than saying how those human rights might apply. So it's really kind of a question in two levels. Do they apply? We concluded yes. How do they apply? That's when it started to get a little dicey in terms of trying to find consensus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I know you talked a little bit about... Uh, uh, when metadata is protected or not protected uh, uh, by international uh, human rights law, when when a access to metadata, scarping up and processing of metadata might violate human rights, uh, how um, uh, how clear a rule or a consensus is there on the idea that the, there might be a violation of uh, international human rights law just to collect metadata? Well, so, so obviously we would say that human rights law applied to collection of intelligence information, but then we get to the question of how it applies. I think that there was a majority of us who agreed that the collection of, meta, of metadata did in fact trigger human rights obligations if that metadata was linked to individuals. There was a, there was a group of us, a smaller group that said that meta, just the collection of metadata was a violation, but, but the majority of us felt that metadata, the collection itself was only, only implicated human rights if it was linked to individuals. So in other words, you can collect metadata, uh, in bulk, that's not a human rights violation, but once you start to link that metadata to an, to an individual, then you had to start applying the, the human rights rules as to what you could do with that metadata once it was linked to an individual. So it's, it, it, I mean, I'm sure 
uh, well, I hope it didn't, uh, the, the notion wasn't that it's a violation of human rights to collect metadata because uh, every intelligence service worth its salt collects metadata uh, and uses that metadata to try to figure out what its adversaries are up to. Right. And so there were a small group of people who were more along those lines, the collecting and then using it, but the majority of us were, were it, it wasn't until it was linked to an individual that it that it began to implicate human rights, and then of course well, that, that 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 makes perfect sense that that you would you would say uh, until it has an effect on an individual, then we don't we we can't imagine that individual human rights are uh, affected. And uh, I take it then once you've found that there is a basis for applying human rights law uh, to a particular activity, you then say, well, what's the impact on human rights? Uh, and certain impacts are for, forbidden. Exactly right. And of course, you know, amongst the world, there's a huge, uh, there's huge discussion about not only the content of human rights, but the application of human rights. So some of the, some of the, the folks at, at, uh, at Talent 2 were concerned about extraterritorial application and how that might play out, and others didn't see that as a big issue. Others, some were concerned about the actual content of the rule and what rule you were applying to specific situations, and others didn't see that as a real issue. We basically um, thought of human rights in three real kind of responsibilities. That the responsibility to respect human rights, to protect human rights, and to fulfill human rights. And we had agreement that respect and protect were issues where cyber would be impacted by human rights in its application, but fulfill was more of a aspirational view of human rights. And, and the group at Talent2 didn't find many of those fulfill responsibilities within human rights that people argue about really played out uh, well in the cyber area. And well, it, unless, we unless you think that... Unless you think that uh, access to the Internet is a fundamental human right and uh, everybody should be given that. Right. That's a great example. I mean, we did not believe that there was a human right, for example, to access to the Internet. That's kind of one of those fulfill obligations that we thought was aspirational. So it does seem to me that uh, by bringing in uh, uh, international human rights law and applying it in a cyber context, especially the kinds of things that we've been talking about here, um, the the Talentuo group is engaged in what I would describe as sort of uh, backdoor regulation of, an, of uh, espionage because the only time you're going to be collecting metadata, uh, well, there are two times, I suppose, you could collect it for law enforcement purposes inside your country, but a lot of the time you're going to be collecting metadata outside your country, uh, and then it'll be espionage purposes, and no one has thought that there was some special human rights restriction on espionage, at least I never thought there was. Well, and, and certainly states don't believe that. I mean, there, you, you'll read people out there who will advocate that position, but there are certainly not many states, in fact, none that really strongly as, um, have advocated that. I mean, we have a couple of instances of states saying that after the Snowden disclosures, uh, Brazil, Jamaica, but, but the vast majority of states obviously still do it and still accept it as being not regulated by international law, and that's the view that we took at Talent2. We we agree that that espionage does not per se violate international law, but like as has always been the case, and this is not uh, unique to cyber operations, the method by which you conduct espionage may be a violation of international law and certainly may be a violation of domestic law. But espionage in and of itself is not, and, and there was nothing that we found in human rights law that would that would impact that and make us change our minds that espionage is not a violation per se of international law. Yeah, although I, I mean, again, uh, uh, looking at this, if, if you say you have a, uh, uh, a majority vote that says that metadata that's linked to a person uh, is a, um, it triggers the application of human rights law, and for some people, even if it's not tied to a uh, human being, it's a uh, potentially violation of human rights law, that, that certainly sounds like it's writing a set of rules for how uh, to conduct espionage if what you're doing is signals intelligence. Well, you know, and it may be a fine distinction, and, and you'll have to judge to it whether we did this well enough in the manual or not, but, but we think that distinction is key. So when we say that the majority believes that, um, that metadata collection, when linked to an individual, would implicate human rights, there is still that secondary question that the violation is not assumed, you have to then say, well, then, is what you're doing with that metadata that is linked to an individual, is that what you do then, is that a violation of human rights? So yes. it's, a, it's a bifurcated inquiry. 
And of course, under espionage, we would say as a matter of international law, that's not enough to violate human rights. You, 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 just that you're conducting espionage. There may be something else you're doing with it. Uh, you know, you may be using that metadata to find out a person's, you know, intimate details. That would be a violation of their human rights. And, and that would be true in the cyber context or in a human intelligence context. But, um, but you have to look at that inquiry as a bifurcated inquiry. Let's talk a little bit about the espionage rules because the, the, there, uh, there was an effort to, uh, beyond the statements that, you know, we come to expect, which is that uh, espionage doesn't per se violate international law, uh, there's also a suggestion that uh, cyber operations might have some, uh, uh, that are, they're aimed at conducting espionage might nonetheless be violations of international law. And I wondered what kinds of things um, you or the Talon 2.0 uh, uh, drafters thought might uh, be uh, ways in which espionage would end up uh, regulated? Well, so again, I think what we would say is espionage per se is not a rule, but there have always been ways where the way you conduct espionage might be a violation of international law. So, for example, let's just say that as part of my, my, my human intelligence gathering of espionage, what I want to do is I want to gain access to an area that is fingerprint um, coded. And so as part of my espionage attempt, I cut off the finger of someone who has access and I take that finger with me and use it then to trigger the finger, the fingerprint access to the room, right? Well, just because I'm conducting espionage doesn't mean that my mutilation of that individual is legal, right? I mean, the fact that I cut off his finger and then use it to gain access is still an illegal act under international law. So, so cyber is the same way. If the way I conduct my espionage ends up resulting in other violations of international law, then that's, then that is, those violations are still sound. But the espionage per se is not a violation. That 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 makes makes sense to me. Well, one of the the, the kinds of things that are done in the course of uh, cyber intelligence collection is uh, weaponized honeypots. I I love the phrase. Uh, what does it really mean? <laughs> I love that phrase too. And and I'll have to tell you, I've had the, the scientists who meet with us explain this to me several times to make sure I uh, I have a sense of what it is. But here, here's as I understand it, Stuart. Let's just say, for example, that um, you know someone is coming into your system or at least trying to get into your system. And what you might do is carve out a piece of your system that looks very inviting to someone who is coming in but actually has no or very little important data. And so you create this thing that we call a honeypot that will draw them in but ends up providing them no real true secrets or true information that they're really after. And then once they're in, of course, that gives you an opportunity to, you know, watch how they get around, to watch their methods, to see what they do, which is, which is great intelligence gathering. Right, and, and, and surely that, that, that's, that, that, you know, you can do that on your own soil in your own systems. That can't. That, I'm not. That's not even espionage, is it? Well, I mean, it might be espionage in the sense that it's gathering data, right? So, in the in right. espionage writ large, that's espionage, but but not overseas espionage. And and I mean, you know, most of this work you and I are talking about has to do with states. But I think in many cases, a, a corporation or a company could even conduct that kind of operation and not even run afoul of U.S. domestic law. But let's just say now we know this person is in. The way you weaponize a honeypot is you, you know, you might have some person who thinks, oh, well, now we've got him in, and they're starting to exfiltrate this data that's not meaningful. So let's give them something that will uh, that will that will send up flares as soon as they put it on their system. Exactly right. So okay. the, so we they exfiltrate data that then has some kind of malware on it that when they take it back to their own system, it does damage on their own system. Now that. Uh, the, the, the majority of it, that's clearly a response to espionage, and the majority of uh, the talent folks thought that was okay, though there was a minority who thought that was not very good. Who thought it was okay to, to, to use honeypots uh, and even to send up, you know, basically to uh, have digital die packs that, that people can steal that will explode on them and allow us to find them later. Um, and even even to say if, if you steal something and it melts your system down, uh, that's okay. That's right. Now that 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 may implicate domestic law. I mean, if you tried to do that in you in the United States, that would be a oh, that would be a violation of U.S. law for sure. Exactly right. But but as a matter of international law, we thought that was okay. Other questions uh, have to do with what the rules are if um, uh, parties who aren't clearly state actors begin attacking other 
countries because we've we've seen that uh, the Russians, the Chinese, uh, and others have um, uh, taken comfort in saying. Oh, that's not us. That's probably some bad actors who are patriotic hackers uh, inside our territory. Give us the details about how you caught them, and we'll see if we can improve their trade. I mean, we'll stop them from uh, uh, attacking you in the in the future. Uh, <laughs> and and it turns out that actually um, uh, the rules that uh, are being urged in in the Talent Two O process are surprisingly make it surprisingly difficult to attribute those attacks and then to respond uh by uh, uh, discomforting the uh, uh the country from whom uh whose territory the attacks come at least as i understood it no I, unfortunately i think you're right and and this goes back to our our commitment as a group to talk about the lex lata and not the lex ferenda i personally believe that this is one of those areas where the law particularly with respect to cyber, is going to change and evolve by states. But right now, the law is pretty clear on attribution. I mean, this, this, this really is an issue of attribution. How, can we attribute the actions of that non-state actor, that criminal group, that terrorist group, or whatever it is, to the state with which it is allied? And the rules of attribution, attribution are very clear in uh, the laws of state responsibility. You know, you've got Articles 4 through 8 that really talk about how you attribute uh, the actions of a non-state actor to a state, and we've walked through those rules very clearly in Talent 2 and, and tried to, to apply them as cleanly as we can. Article 4 would allow you to attribute the organs of a state. So if, for example, that Russian group uh, who was using that Black Energy 3 and was coming after the, the power plant in Ukraine was an organ, either de facto or de jure, of the Russian state, then we could certainly attribute that. But it, it wasn't. It doesn't appear to be. So more likely an Article 8 analysis would apply, which would mean, was Russia exercising effective control over that group? And we have some international law from the, from the ICJ case dealing with Nicaragua, from the recent uh, Bosnia genocide case, that reinforces those principles. And, and the, the level in international law, not just in cyber, but in international law, is pretty high to make that attribution. I mean, it can't be just supplying funds. It can't be even supplying weapons. So even if the Russian government was, was providing malware and even, even intimating what they thought the target could be, unless they're really controlling the day-to-day -day interactions of that, of that uh, hacking group, there's not going to be attribution. Wow, and that and that means that it makes it very hard to uh, decide to go back into the territory that's attacking you and 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 take action. Uh, I recognize that's sort of a um, unable or unwilling analysis. And let me let me kind of close out the discussion uh, of the details with a hypothetical, and you can analyze it according to the principles that have come out so far. Um, and it's not so hypothetical. Uh, uh, the Iranians attacked American banks with denial-of-service attacks uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, and they did it by compromising uh, computers all over the world and then having those computers fire uh, um, uh, uh, packets at the banks to the point where the banks, uh, real customers couldn't get through. Uh, and, um, those attacking machines were probably the, the property of some innocent party who just wasn't very careful about protecting his assets. Uh, the logical thing, the obvious thing, uh, for the U.S. to have done would have been to go, since we can identify every one of those machines, to go into those machines and fix them, to, to, to make them proof against the kinds of compromises, uh, or at least to take out the uh, um, uh, the bot uh, net uh, uh, code so that they were no longer responsive to the orders of the Iranians who were attacking us. Uh, that's not what we did. Uh, instead, we wrung our hands and said, oh dear, no, before we go into a Thailand, uh, into a, a computer in Thailand, we need to go to the Thai government. We need to tell them that there's somebody attacking us from their territory. Give them a chance to uh, figure out what's going on and and then fix it themselves. And only if we do all that could we possibly um, uh, fix the problem at the source. Uh, and I thought that was crazy. It, it drove the banks crazy. Some of them uh, uh, wanted to go fix it themselves. Uh, but I, if I'm hearing you, uh, it sounds as though uh, under current international law, 
uh, that the State Department may have been right in saying, no, we don't dare to eat the peach. So I think that there were a lot of policy considerations in the way the United States dealt with that. I don't think that their restrictions were all based in law. I think that there are some, some issues with how the United States wants to interact with financial institutions and how much the United States wants to take on the protection of specific financial institutions that is unique in some ways to the United States that you wouldn't have in Russia or in China or in some of those other countries where the government is perfectly willing to take actions on their behalf. But these were these were these were these were computers that could have been computers for the uh, uh, the local equivalent of Seven Eleven. They just happened to be computers that were connected to the internet and weren't prop- very well secured. You wouldn't necessarily be breaking into a bank's computer when you when you tried to cut off the the denial of service attack. Uh, no, I, I um, meant the target was the banks. I, yes. I meant the target was the banks, and how much the U.S. wanted to wanted to act on behalf of the targets. Now, in terms of the of the sorry of the victims. In terms of the, the computers that are just taking part in that, th- this raises the issue of a white worm or can you go in and clean up a system involuntarily. Yep. And, and the United States, I think, has the authority under international law to certainly stop, as a proportional countermeasure, that specific system from coming at and doing harm in the United States. Even though it's located in a third party that uh, isn't uh, actually uh, responsible for the uh, the attack. Well, under the under the most clear regime, what would need to happen is the United States would notify that state that the attack was coming and then that state would accrue a due diligence obligation to stop it themselves. And then if they were unwilling or unable to do that, then the United States could step in and stop that hack. Uh, in their own defense. But that might take quite a while, right? That's uh, right. And uh, the problem with that is, of course, in the state of cyber, that can all happen very quickly. So if a state determines, if the United States determines that, that, that going through that process of, hey, you have to turn, please, here's your knowledge, please now exercise your due diligence, if that's not going to be effective enough to stop the attack at the point when the attack has happened, then I think the United States can take uh, proportionate countermeasures on its own. And, and you, you, so that's a proportionate countermeasure, uh, against a private party, um, even located in the territory of a neutral uh, nation, is permissible, uh, and the question of exactly what uh, you need to do by way of uh, prerequisites uh, might be flexible based on the exigencies you face. Well, I think so. I mean, countermeasures obviously come with a list of requirements. You have to put them on notice. You have to give them a chance to remedy. It has to be tied to the to the actual um, unlawful act, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in a situation in cyber where things are happening instantaneously, I think that a state could certainly make the decision that they needed to stop that harm immediately and that it may not be effective for them to wait for the host state of that computer system to take actions on its own. Well, that, 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 that's the, the, the most comforting thing you've said all day. Maybe, I, I, maybe you should have been the legal advisor to the State Department instead of Harold Coe. Uh, uh, but, okay. Um, so, just... Wrapping up, um, I, I wondered who's actually at the table uh, uh, producing what amounts to a restatement of uh, international law for cyberspace operations. Uh, uh, you guys sent, or uh, uh, the organization that did Talon 1 sent out invitations, or did people self-invite uh, uh, in some respects? Uh, how, how, did, how did this group of... Uh, Quasi lawmakers come together. Well, so so Michael Schmidt, who's the director of the program, would be able to answer that much more accurately than me because he's the one who kind of uh, did that. But but what I can tell you, as at least as I understand the process, is he and the CCDCOE, the NATO organization there in town, worked together to find people that they determined had expertise not only in cyber but then in particular areas of law. For example, we we wanted to bring people in who knew and understood human rights. We wanted to bring people in who knew and understood the law of the sea, who knew and understood intervention and jurisdiction and sovereignty. And so they conducted, excuse me, basically a, a worldwide search, I guess, for people who not only knew that information but were willing to be a part of the group and then uh, invited them to come and be a part. And uh, and it was, again, a much more global uh, version. I mentioned some of the countries that people came from, so it was a much more global version, which, which you would have thought would have made it much harder for us to actually come to consensus, but it didn't prove to be that way. We, we found that, uh, in most cases, consensus was pretty easy to come to, despite the diversity of our nationalities. Yeah, okay. I, um, my, my assumption is that... Uh, 
most of the people who want to be known for talking about international law want to know, be known for talking about it because they don't actually have to practice it. Uh, instead, they, uh, uh, they 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 uh, turn their opinions into uh, quasi law, uh, and that many of them probably are quite comfortable with the idea that the U.S. Uh, uh, will have less freedom of action and less ability to defend itself in cyberspace uh, after Talon 2.0 than before. Uh, but that's that, that may just be me. I, 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 I do appreciate your giving us a chance to hear about some of these rules. When is Talon 2.0 uh, due to actually see the light of day? Well, so again, we're still going through the process of finishing up the final pieces of it and 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 the states states across the world have had a lot of input and we have uh, we've incorporated that input in so we're we're not just trying to ignore those who are actually doing we certainly recognize that uh, state practice is the most important thing here it's just so hard of course to know since uh, it's so classified and people don't talk about it a lot but once we've combined everything that we have done as the group of experts and what states have provided us and others have provided us in terms of input, we've also had peer reviewers uh, who are actual doers and who are academics uh, around the world who have been providing us input as well. Um, once we've combined all that, then we hope to get it to uh, the publisher, I think, sometime the end of this summer, and uh, hopefully it will be published sometime around the new year. Okay. Well, even those of us who are inclined to or disposed to uh to hate it, we'll have to read it. So uh, I appreciate your giving us uh, uh, an early uh, overview of what it's likely to cover. Well, and Stuart, even though I know you won't like it, I will be very grateful to hear your input because you're obviously uh, well engaged on these issues and it would be valuable. All right, Eric, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks also to Michael Vadis, uh, Alan Cohn, and, and Maury Shank. As always, the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Send your feedback to uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and uh, when you get a chance, go to uh, iTunes or your other podcast aggregator and give us a review because the reviews help determine whether they're ever going to feature us, uh, although I'm guessing that if Tim Cook uh, has a choice, uh, uh, he will uh, uh, feature uh, uh, podcasts uh, in uh, the Papua New Guinea uh, uh, language before he talks about ours. Uh, this has been episode 112 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Mike Hayden, former director of the CIA and the National Security Agency and author of Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, which is a good book, and I uh, recommend it. Uh, and Oren Kerr, everyone's favorite computer crime law guru. We hope you'll join us for those and other podcasts as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.